Father, we are just so grateful that we can come together and hear this message for your people. I pray that the truths of Scripture and the truths of Ruth will speak to these people and encourage those who are faint-hearted and discouraged who um, might struggle with a dark cloud of melancholy and depression. And I pray that you will help us to know how to help those who are struggling and knowing that we do live in a world that is broken with sadness and often sometimes sadness gets the better of us. And so I pray that this will be a helpful message in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I already tipped my, my hand, uh, today uh, we're going to be talking about a frowning providence. What do you do when you feel like, well, the Lord's out to get you? And how do you kind of pierce those dark clouds and, and kind of restore a sense of hope? And to begin with, I wanted to read you a description of depression by a biblical counselor named Edward T. Welch. And, and depression, from everything that I've read, is it's better described than defined, but I'm going to describe it first and then try to define it. It is technically called depression, but it can't be captured by a word. You feel numb, yet your head hurts. Empty, yet inside there are screams. Fatigue, yet fears abound. Things that were once pleasures now barely hold your attention. Your brain feels like it is in a fog. You feel weighted down. Do you remember when you had goals? Things that you look forward to? They could have been as small as going to a movie on Friday night or a job you wanted to accomplish. Now you have very few goals. Making it through the day seems like enough. Do you notice what life feels like without goals? Every day is the same. There is no rhythm of rising anticipation, satisfaction, then rest. Each day brings a dreadful monotony, and you fear that tomorrow will be the same as today. The flatness of life feels like it is killing you. Sleep, it's a mess. You can't get enough. You don't even remember what it feels like to wake up refreshed. I'm not sure if you've ever been there. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, don't worry. But at its core, um, depression is sadness without hope. Okay? It's not wrong to be sad. But when you have a hopeless sadness and you reach a point where you never feel like you could be happy again, uh, often that's a, a sign that you are in the grip of a, of a depression. And often, um, depression is triggered by some sort of suffering. Something goes wrong. And when we look at Ruth, Ruth is a very human book with a very human protagonist. And really, the main character in Ruth is not Ruth. It's Naomi. This is really the, the story of her, of her journey through really unspeakable suffering. When we opened the book, she was a high-profile lady in the town of Bethlehem, married to a very prominent man. Famine uh, drove them to try to settle elsewhere, and the Lord took the life of her husband. And then 10 years later, the Lord took the life of her two sons. And as we talked about, in that world, you lose your sons, you, you lose everything. And so she uh, begins to go back to Bethlehem, to Judea, because she hears that there's a harvest there, and she's accompanied by her daughters-in-law, and what's 
Really interesting, in the midst of this sorrow, she tries to push her daughters away. She says in Ruth 1.13, Know my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. All right, if the Lord is against you, who can be for you? If the hand of the Lord is against you, you, you often just want to push people away. Save, save yourself, I'm a, I'm a lost cause. And then when she shows up in Bethlehem, this once prominent lady who was, a quite con- who was a consequential, well-known, known as the pleasant one, Naomi, is greeted by the women of the town and they look at her and say, Naomi, is that you? Right? You're Naomi? And she said to them, in Ruth 1, 20, 21. Do not call me Naomi, pleasant one. Call me Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Right? The Lord's out to get her. She has no hope. She is defined by her bitterness. And what's also interesting is when Ruth takes the initiative and decides that she's going to go out and try to collect some food, what does, what does Naomi do? Go, my daughter. Now, she's probably in her late 40s, early 50s, young enough to still help out I suspect, I don't know for sure, but I suspect that she was in the grip of hopelessness. What's the point? What's the point? Now, the Bible doesn't actually use the word depression, but it's very familiar with the concept. Case in point, Proverbs 18, 14. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear? When you get sick, you, hope, you have hope that you'll get well. But when your, your spirit is crushed, who can bear it? Who can bear it? Who can rise out from, uh, from under it? And so here we have Naomi who is faced with severe suffering and her spirit is crushed. Her spirit is crushed. Now, I don't know where you are. I mean, depression really is a spectrum. Some get more depressed than others. Some are deeper in the hole than others. Uh, There's different causes of it. Could be a job loss, losing someone you love, a broken relationship, uh, just living with chronic pain. Uh, Or maybe it it might just seem like a small thing, but it's the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. But whatever it is, there there is a sense of suffering that brings you low, right, into a trough. And the thing about depression is you, you don't have any hope that you'll escape from it. Now, when we look at the, the story arc of Ruth, it, it's been described as a J-curve. Do you know what a J-curve is? You start here, and you go down, and then you go up. It would be, it'd just be a U if it's right here, right? But the J-curve, you go up from where you started. 
And the reason why I say that is you look at Ruth uh, 4, 14 through 15. She lost two sons. And at the end of the story, this is what the townswomen say about Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is, worth, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Lost two sons, gains a daughter-in-law who's worth seven. And then she also has an heir, the J-curve. And when we look at the, at the story arc, what we see in this passage of Scripture is she's at the bottom, and all of a sudden there's just a slight bend upwards. Let me read you the passage we're going to talk about today. Ruth 2, 17 through 23. So she gleaned, this is Ruth gleaning in the field, until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah, ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Okay, now this is the inflection point of the J-curve, right? There's something that fundamentally changes in Naomi, where really by the end of this, she has some hope. So what's going on here that seems to change Naomi's perspective? Now, one sufferer who, talk, who battles depression uh, said the following, quote, I had a friend and a pastor who kept a bigger picture of God's kingdom in front of me. Depression made my world so small, when I saw that God was on the move, I began to have hope. See, what's happening here is that Naomi is beginning to recognize little signs of God's smiling providence. While it wasn't written yet, the concept of Romans 8.28 was starting to come true. Let me read that for you who are unacquainted with it. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. This speaks of God's smiling providence. Now, do you guys know what I mean by providence? It's not an insurance company. It's a theological concept 
that God is actively governing all the affairs of his creation. He didn't just kind of create the universe like he just kind of set the clock and then step back and just let it run on its own. He is actively involved in every element of creation. I'll give you some passages to, to show what I mean. Like one, he, he governs the universe on a macro level. We see this in Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. And his kingdom rules over all. He not only rules on the macro level, but the micro level. Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew 10, 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. So that dead fly in the window sill, that's the providence of God. The dead bird on the side of the road is the providence of God. No life form loses his life apart from the decree of God. God rules on a political level. We may not want to hear this, but Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. See, God's providence means that there's no such thing as luck. There's no such thing as chance. And you really see that playing out as we went through the story of Ruth, right? Ruth goes out to try to find food, and she just happens to find the field of Boaz. Of all the fields she can be in, it's this one. As we talked about last week, when she needed some male assistance, Boaz just happens to show up. There is no such thing as luck. You have the providence of God working through this. Now, if you were to ask Naomi, do you believe in the providence of God? She would say, absolutely. God did this to me. Of course I believe in it. She believes in a frowning providence, that the smile of God has left her, that God has somehow turned against her. She doesn't believe in a happy providence. She doesn't believe that God is working all these things out for her good. Until she began to change her perspective. And so what I want to do today is I want to point out three instances of God's smiling providence. You see a fruitful provision, a favor of a friend, and a future to consider. And I want to do it with a caveat though. I'm under no illusion that this will be the magic sermon that chases away your depression forever. Okay? Depression's a journey. It takes a long time to go down. It takes a long time to come up. Right? Everyone I've talked to, it's not like you take this pill or you, um, you know, try this essential oil and it's just gone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a journey. It's a journey. But what I hope to do is just kind of give you a few candles, okay? A few candles to kind of lighten the darkness. And perhaps this might arrest your fall into despondency or, or, or maybe just kind of help you on your way out of it, Okay? And the basic lesson is this. If God is for you, who can be against you? Behind a frowning providence, there is a smiling face. That while you may feel like everything is stacked against you, God actually has a larger good purpose in mind, even if you may not see it. And that's true of Naomi. It's interesting to read all of Ruth when we know there will be a happy ending, right? But what we see in this passage is she starts to see the smiling providence. And this 
begins with seeing fruitful provision. Let's look at verse 17 again. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and she beat out what she gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now remember, Boaz made special provisions for her. Uh, she can just go right behind the threshers, just gather the grain off the ground. And at the end of the day, she took either a, a wooden mallet or wooden stick and just kind of beat all the seeds loose. And she got an ephah of barley. And you're like, well, how big is that? It's five and a half gallons of seed harvested by hand. Right? That is a lot. It's enough to feed two women for two weeks. A very generous provision. And so she probably put it in her shawl, bunched up the corners, slung it around her shoulder, and then she goes home. And she took it, verse 18, and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Now, now remember, Naomi didn't go into the field. She had her reasons. Ruth is gone for a long time, so apparently she found some sort of work, and then she just kind of opens up the door, and Naomi says, well, how did it go? And, and can't you just imagine, she just kind of walks in, throws down the shawl, opens it up, and Ephah is like, and Ephah, barley? He's like, what is, and then Ruth says, wait, there's more. Reaches into her pocket, got some roasted grain for you that, you know, a certain person gave to me. Right, this was um, kind of full of irony. Remember when Naomi is talking to the townspeople and she said, I went away full and I came back empty. In this case, Ruth went away empty and came back full. The Lord was meeting her needs. And what's interesting is it's not like um, Naomi finally got this lesson or had some epiphany. Remember, a lot of the suffering that Naomi experienced was really on account of some of her disobedience. It was uh, the discipline of God. And it's not like God is out there saying, once you get it, I will bless you. She still doesn't get it. But one of the major themes of the book of Ruth is the Hesed love of God, the covenant love of God, how he loves people and his love is predicated on his love for them, not on their performance. And so, even while she is struggling and wrestling with all this stuff, God decides to give her faithful provision. Even as she's uttering that bitter complaint against the Lord, the gift of Ruth is standing right by her. She just didn't see it. But there is something about seeing this food and seeing this provision that, that almost softens Naomi to the point where she starts to see that Maybe the Lord is, is in this after all. See, one of the uh, elements of, of depression is depression feeds on darkness. It feeds on darkness. Um, depression is actually a rational state of mind if you don't believe God loves you. Right? If, if God doesn't love you and he's in control of the universe, you should be depressed, Right? And so a lot of times when people are in this depressed state, uh, to rationalize it, uh, what they will do is look for the darkness to fortify their sentiments so that they kind of have this cohesive whole. And so when somebody points to 
the bright side. Well, hasn't the Lord done this for you? The tendency is to make that the exception or to push that person away as they don't really understand. You see, Satan wants you to believe that divine love and human suffering cannot coexist. Let me say that again. Satan wants you to believe that divine love and human suffering cannot coexist. If you are suffering, it's either because God can't control the circumstances, or if you are suffering and you believe God is sovereign, then God must not love you. But you see, the problem with that thinking is there's a longer window of time that we have to keep in mind. Jesus suffered for a little while, right? But there was a larger loving purpose to that. And we know from Scripture that God's love for His people is a fact. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Skipping forward to verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Every Christian lives on a J-curve, right? Our, our life will end up here. Maybe not our life in this realm, but certainly in the next. We all live on the J-curve. God is working all these things for our good, and sometimes we struggle to, to see it. And, and sometimes in the midst of the, of the darkness that you might be experiencing, it, it might be good to, to even reflect, how has the Lord provided for me? How has the Lord provided for me? He's given me food. He's given us a warm shelter. He's given you an awesome pastor. <laughs> now, some of you are nodding. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> pastor points for you. Those who laughed will deal with you later. <laughs> but in this case, God also provided friends for Naomi. You see the, the favor of friends via Ruth and Boaz. And that brings us to the next point, the favor of a friend. Now, Naomi is smart enough to know that one doesn't just glean. Remember the whole process of gleaning? You're supposed to follow the threshers. They pick over everything, bundle everything. And then what's left over, you just kind of strip the stalks. She's smart enough to know that doing that will not produce five and a half gallons of barley. She must have gotten a break somehow. And so, verse 19, and her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is a man who took notice of you. She knew that some man had to provide. And this is where it gets interesting. She says, the man who took notice of me was 
Boaz. The man, the man's name with whom I work today is, drumroll, Boaz. In the Hebrew, it's translated the same way. Boaz is the last word. It's like this climactic announcement. And in response, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. And then she says something that's super interesting in the light of her disposition or her, her belief in God's disposition towards her. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now, there is some serious discussion about who does whose refer to? Whose kindness are we talking about? And kindness means uh, loving kindness. It's the hesed love. Whose, whose hesed has been shown to the living and the dead? Some people think that this is a reference to Boaz. And that could be. Uh, I think it more likely refers to the nearest antecedent, the Lord. But even if it was Boaz, she has an understanding of the providence of God that it was the Lord working through Boaz. There's an ambiguity here that suggests that both parties, where the Lord blessed Naomi through the hesed love of a man. And he blessed the living, being Ruth and Naomi, and the dead. One of Naomi's chief concerns is the familial extinction of Elimelech, that there might be something to help our cause in the future, but we'll get to that later. All that to say, the favor of a friend ministered to her greatly. Now, in the 18th century, William Cooper was one of the most famous poets in England. Author of, he was also, uh, became a Christian and the author of many well-known hymns, right? There's a fountain filled with blood, God moves in mysterious ways. And he was someone who struggled with severe bouts of, dis- uh, of depression. This is how he describes it. I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. Now, he eventually converted to Christianity, and he became involved in church, and that did lift his spirits, but it still persisted. He became good friends with his pastor. You might have heard of him, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, who in the providence of God we happen to sing today, right? There you go. No such thing as chance. And John Newton was a man who understood grace and gave grace freely. And even though he would reach out to William Cooper, William Cooper pushed back with this. Loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come where it once ended. You tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and I endeavor and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it but it will be lost labor, right? If you're trying to cheer me up, John, you're wasting your time. They're wasting your time. And do you know what John did? Well, he kept at it. He writes this. William Cooper writes this of Newton. I found those comforts in your visit which have formerly sweetened all our interviews, in part restored. I knew you, 
Knew you for the same shepherd who was sent to lead me out of the wilderness into the pasture where the chief shepherd feeds his flock and felt my sentiments of affectionate friendship for you the same as ever. Right? It was a favor of a friend. He was pushed away, but John just said, no, you don't. I'm still going to come. We're going to spend time together. His hesed love for his friend lifted him, encouraged him when he needed it most. Just like Boaz's um, hesed love for Naomi, Ruth's hesed love for Naomi began to lift her spirits. And that leads to another remarkable turn, which is a, a future to consider. Look at verse 20. Naomi also said, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Naomi knows that this man is a relative of her husband. He's a redeemer. Now, a redeemer is a relative who um, pays the price for an impoverished relative. And do you understand the full significance of this? You have to understand that that in Israel, you did not own the land. The land was all owned by the Lord. And the Lord parceled out the land to specific tribes. Asher, Zebulun, Judah, Ephraim. And the thing is, that land was to stay within the tribe. If you were to sell the land outside of it, then Judah's inheritance would swell beyond the given allotment. And one way that God decided to make sure that the land stayed within the family was the redeemer, the redeemer system. And so if you had a poor harvest and you had to sell the land, a redeemer was to buy it back so it stayed within the clan. This is to make sure that New Bedford Falls does not become Pottersville, right? Secondly, if someone had to file for bankruptcy, they didn't have any money to their name, well, they would sell themselves into slavery, but a redeemer would buy them back. If a relative was murdered, it was the redeemer who would stand up and look for justice to avenge the one whose life was wrongly taken. In all of this, a redeemer was to look out for his clan. Now, just because somebody's a redeemer doesn't mean that they're going to act like it. With Boaz, he's not just a redeemer. You see that he is acting like it by his provision for Ruth and Naomi. And so Naomi begins to sense the future and she wants to protect it. Verse 21, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides he said to me, you shall keep, a close, keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Now, young men, just so you know, is a generic term for his servants, okay? We know earlier that he instructed his young men not to touch, and he actually told her that she needs to spend time with the ladies. And, and Naomi reinforces this advice in verse 22. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young men, lest in another field you should be assaulted. In other words, make sure you stay safe. But Naomi is beginning to wonder if there's a larger purpose for all this. God just so happened to send her into Boaz's field. Boaz came and generously provided for her. Boaz has shown Hesed love for Naomi. Ruth has shown Hesed love for Naomi. I wonder if both of their Hesed love for me might lead to a, a future. 
See, as she's planning and thinking about the future, you can almost sense the darkness lifting. Now, a woman named Mara experienced severe depression, and she uh, sat down for an interview with David Pallison, uh, a very famous, influential uh, biblical counselor, and this is what she said. And Pallison actually counseled her through this. Mara says, I really thought, what's the point of setting up goals? I remember talking with you about having a self-prophecy that either I'm going to die or I'll be insane. I lived with that since I was a teenager that someday I would self-destruct. I would either end up in a mental institution or end up dead. I think that sucks the life out of goals. I imagine it would, right? Why bother? As I look back now, I never realized how much that impacted me. In the last three or four years, one of the benefits of all that has occurred in my life is that for the first time in my life, I am pursuing goals like school and a career. I actually believe that in God's grace, I have a future. I see the lifting of depression, the goals in my life, and the things that have been happening on the outside are great. Right? She has plans for the future. And Ruth executes these plans, executes these plans verse 23. So she kept a close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Right? As we see, there is, a, there is a plan. Naomi will explain the plan later on. I know you all are intrigued to find out how exactly is that plan going to make sense. But whatever the case, she sees God's hesed love working through her servants and begins to think that there is a way out there is a path forward in the J-curve. God is working all things out for the good of those who love him, those who are called by God for his people. And so this is really the, the takeaway. Even if you can't see it, even if you don't sense it, God's smiling face is still upon you and he can use it for your good and planning for it, and being busy seeking to even steward the sadness can be fruitful and helpful. John Newton knew that William Cooper was a very gifted poet and very good with words. And so he decided to uh, do a project with him. They decided that we're going to write a, a, a hymnal. He wrote Amazing Grace. But William Cooper wrote some notable hymns, a Fountain Filled with Blood, which is one of my personal favorites. He also wrote one entitled, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And it's really interesting to read the lyrics. I'm not going to sing it to you. I don't sing solos. My wife forbids it. <laughs> but here is a man who struggled with depression. Okay? And you almost, you can just hear him counseling himself through the lyrics of this song. I'll read them to you. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread 
are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. All of those circumstances in life, those storm clouds will break with rains. That, that frowning providence where you feel like the Lord is out to get you, behind all that is the smiling face of God where he is for you. And if you need proof of that, you look back 2,000 years. While you deserve a frowning providence and more, while your sin has grieved God and incurred his wrath, his, his son came to earth, lived the life you should have lived, and died the death you should have died. He endured the frowning providence and then some, didn't he? On the cross, he cried out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, the reason why, because our sins were placed on him. He suffered the wrath of God so that those who trust in him can have new life, can be redeemed, can be regarded as sons and daughters of the king. And when that reality takes place in your life, you always have a friend. You always have a father. The God of the universe will move the muscles of his omniscience for your ultimate good. And sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you're blind to it. Sometimes God doesn't let you see it. But that doesn't mean it's not there. The way out of depression is just holding on to this precious thought that behind a frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we are grateful that you are a sovereign God who works in real time with real people in real ways. And Father, sometimes we <clears throat> can't see the good that you do, and sometimes it's not meant for us to see. And I pray for anyone here who perhaps they are in a season of despair. This has been a difficult time for whatever reason. Uh, I pray that this, uh, this message and this truth will, will minister to them in some way, that the darkness will just lighten just a shade, uh, that you will give them just a ray of hope, that you'll just help them to have eyes that are just extra perceptive to the good things, the little things that you might be providing for them. And help us as a church know how to minister to the faint-hearted, to those who are crushed by the trials and tribulations of life, that we, like you, will not crush the bruised reed or extinguish the smoldering wick. Lord, we thank you that that is your disposition towards us, that even when we lose hope, uh, when we falter, your hesed love is unwavering towards us. We thank you for these truths in Jesus' name. Amen.